This week on the Backtable Podcast. So in my mind, I mean, citrate is a potent inhibitor of calcium phosphate crystallization. And we know from patients with renal tubular acidosis that the treatment is alkali and that you're treating the metabolic acidosis. So in those patients, they're already starting out with high pHs. Their pH may be, you know, 7, 7.1, 7.2. They may already have high urine pH. And the goal in those patients is really to correct the acidosis. And as a result, you should see an increase in urinary citrate. I'm not so afraid about pH if I'm seeing effectiveness in terms of urinary citrate. Dear Backtable listeners, welcome. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Backtable Urology. It's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Peggy Pearl, a good friend and a person who's inspired many of us to pursue academic urology. Dr. Pearl is a professor of urology and internal medicine, perhaps the one urologist I know who has a dual appointment in internal medicine. So who else to ask, how do we prevent stones with medical therapy? Dr. Pearl is an international authority on this topic and has had major leadership roles in all of our main societies, including the AUA and the Endourology Society. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for joining us today to share your wisdom, expertise, and experience. Thanks so much, Manoj. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. We go back a long way, so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Well, Peggy, it's been a hot summer, and I suspect it's been just as hot in Dallas as it has in San Diego. In 2008, Yerlo Ten and Peggy Pearl, you both published a, a wonderful paper predicting what would happen with kidney stones as the climate got warmer. How has that panned out? Are you seeing what you predicted back in 2008? I would say if how busy I am in the operating room and clinic is any indication, the answer would be our prediction was spot on. I think the heat, you know, up to 112 degrees here lately is certainly bringing kidney stone patients out of the woodwork. Well, apart from air conditioning and swimming pools, I know that one of the big things is hydration. Have you changed your recommendations to increase the amount of fluids that you've recommended now compared to what you might have recommended 20 years ago? I mean, I think I still recommend the same volume overall of urine, which is about two and a half liters a day. I think what the fluid intake it takes to get to that volume certainly varies according to the temperature externally. So I do think patients need to drink more now to achieve the same volume that we might have achieved when the temperatures were lower. We do have a companion episode with Dr. Chris Pennison where we focused on the dietary aspects of stone prevention, but I would like to start off today by asking that first-line therapy, what type of behavior modifications and dietary recommendations do you give to the stone former who perhaps is coming to you for the first time without the benefit of a 24-hour urine test? Are there empiric recommendations that you feel are healthy for the whole body in addition to stones that you tell every stone patient? Yeah, I do. And I I think that's important because not all patients are going to need to be prescribed medication and not all patients are going to collect 24-hour urine. So I think if we're going to give a first-time stone former just a general overview of dietary recommendations, obviously we start with the high fluid intake. 
And as we just discussed, the goal being to achieve a urine volume of about two and a half liters a day. And I make it clear that how much it takes to achieve that urine volume is going to vary according to their activity level, to their exposure to heat and humidity. So I ask them about their occupation and their general lifestyle habits and how much they exercise because that really will impact their need for fluid intake. Other recommendations that I think are overall healthy lifestyles would be limiting salt intake, and we generally recommend limiting sodium intake to no more than about 2,000 milligrams a day. And for most patients, I think the issue is not so much the salt they add to their food, it's the processed foods that they're eating. Many patients will tell you, you know, they don't add salt to anything, and yet you see that their urinary sodiums are very high. So I think it's really important for them to control what they're eating in terms of processed and prepared foods. You can look up all kinds of sodium content online, and I have patients do that, and to try to just add it up and see how much sodium they're actually taking in. Other recommendations would be limiting their animal protein intake, and I generally tell patients about about eight ounces of animal protein a day, and that includes all forms of animal protein. It's not just red meat. It's fish, chicken, beef, poultry, shellfish. All forms of animal protein are included in that. So patients that tell you they eat no red meat may be eating large amounts of fish, and fish actually gram for gram has a higher uric acid content than does beef or chicken. So I do emphasize that that's all kinds of animal protein intake. In terms of calcium intake, I know some stone patients tend to be afraid of calcium and they they tend to eliminate dairy from their diet, which could be problematic for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is, is compromising their overall bone health. So I recommend that patients maintain a calcium intake That's the recommended daily allowance, which is going to be somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 milligrams a day, depending on gender and age. So that could be somewhere between two and three servings of dairy a day, and not necessarily more. More is not better in terms of stone disease. You just want patients to be getting enough for their bones, but not so much that they're going to significantly increase their urinary calcium. And oxalate is an important issue. I don't harp as much on that unless I see that patients have a high oxalate intake, but I may ask about their dietary habits and some of the foods that they eat. Are they juicing or with spinach? Are they eating a lot of nuts? Do they eat a lot of whole grains and, and brown rice and things? I mean, some patients who maintain this super healthy lifestyle actually have a really high oxalate, a high oxalate content in their diet. So those would be kind of the main things that I think I focus on just as a general dietary recommendations. Well, Peggy, thank you for that very sage advice. The uh, spinach smoothie for breakfast is a big thing here out in San Diego, but fortunately we can usually switch people over to kale. I did have a chance to go out for lunch today, so I am overwhelmed with guilt, but I will try to readjust my behavior for dinner a little later after this recording. Are there any supplements that you recommend either empirically Or once you get a 24-hour urine test that says, for example, the citrate is low or something else is awry? You know, I try to some degree to to avoid recommendations for supplements. I mean, a lot of patients are are already using supplements. I'd really rather them focus more on their their diet rather than on supplements. A lot of supplements and a lot of the things that that patients are taking, you know, over-the-counter that they're getting from the web... We just don't know what the content of those supplements are. So I'm always a little bit leery of that. I'd I'd rather them focus on diet where we have at least a little more knowledge, although not maybe complete knowledge, but 
enough that I think we don't have to worry about what other elements may be present in some of the supplements. Well, Peggy, thank you. Before we delve into the 24-hour urine, I suppose we should ask, should we do a 24-hour urine? And recognizing that it's a question that may not be able to be answered by evidence, what are your thoughts? Who should get a 24-hour urine? Are we still following the guidelines in terms of high-risk patients, or does everyone get one, or does no one really need it? Yeah, I mean, it's a controversial topic, and I guess I'm old school in the sense that I still believe in it because I think it's the best we've got. Hopefully, there will be better out there at some point. But I think right now, it's the best thing we have to guide our recommendations and to really assess what are the risk factors. So I don't think everybody deserves a 24-hour urine. I think the guidelines got it right in the sense that first-time low-risk stone formers, that is stone formers who don't have any really underlying risk factors, they don't have a family history of stone disease, they don't have some of the high-risk characteristics like any kind of bowel disease, bowel resections, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac sprue, things that, that we know are high risk in terms of stone formation, patients with bone disease, um, any patients who have known underlying medical conditions associated with stones like renal tubular acidosis. I mean, those, you know, we can get from the history who is high risk and who isn't. We need to ask about medications that patients are taking or supplements like calcium supplements or medications like topiramate, anything that that increases the likelihood of recurrent stone formation. So I think a careful history can really elucidate who those patients are that might be best managed with just general dietary measures like we just discussed, or those patients that we have to delve a little deeper with their 24-hour urine so we can be, I think, more specific about what abnormalities they have and how to address them. So let's say we have a patient who has a spinach smoothie for breakfast, a pepperoni pizza for lunch, and an 18-ounce ribeye for dinner. Do you get a 24-hour urine patient on that now, or do you have them do dietary interventions first? And if so, how long do you wait before you do the 24-hour urine test? I would say in patients who maybe are not as aggressive stone formers, I might play around with diet first and then reassess them after dietary modification. But some of the more aggressive stone formers, I'll start right off the bat with two 24-hour urine collections to assess them because I kind of want to know what do things look like at their worst? What do things look like in their natural state? And then I can start worrying about what I can get rid of and what I can add back from a dietary standpoint. If, you know, it sounds like they think they eat a lot of foods high in oxalate, but their 24-hour urine subsequently didn't show that, then I'd be able to tell them then eat what you're eating. It's not a problem. So I think I like to sort of see them doing what they're doing, and then I can hopefully make more limited recommendations rather than give them a whole litany of things that they need to follow, many of which they won't. I think Chris Penniston did a really nice study looking at how many recommendations can a patient recall, and I think it's like one or two. Most don't hear beyond that. So if you give them all those things we talked about in diet, if I mentioned all of those to patients, I think they probably wouldn't adhere to any of them. But if I could be really specific about the one or two things that seem to be likely to be the biggest risk factors, then they might be able to focus more on that and not worry about every aspect of their diet and just become overwhelmed by it all. And you mentioned two 24-hour urine tests. What are the more common discordances that you see when you have two 24-hour urines? And what do you do when you see those discordances? Yeah, I mean, it's it's surprising how many discordances you do see. I mean, you can see, I mean, really every element. 
you can see pH, which can be acidic on one collection and even alkaline on another. Um, you can see calcium that's grossly abnormal and then completely normal on another. You can see normal citrate and low citrate. I think any aspect of any of the variables in the 24-hour urine can, can vary between two 24-hour urines. So the reason I do two is because I'm really reluctant to you know commit somebody to medication for the rest of their lives based on a single 24-hour urine because a single 24-hour urine is going to reflect about three days of their diet. So it's really just sort of a snapshot in time and anybody can have a bad dietary day or days and I would hate to be basing all my recommendations on that. So if I do two 24-hour urines and they're very inconsistent, then I'm going to hold off. I'll, I'll make some dietary recommendations and then I'll repeat another 24-hour urine and just see where the trend seems to be. But I really, if they're, if they're that disparate, then I, you know, I'd be reluctant to, to commit someone to medication. And I might mention some of the dietary things that perhaps might make their urine collections look a little more consistent. And how long do you wait for that repeat 24-hour urine test, either after dietary intervention and or medical intervention? I usually wait about three months. I think three months is a good time frame. It's soon enough that they still sort of remember what you were talking about. And it's short enough that if you get back to them that time frame, I think the conversation might still be fresh in their mind. I think if you wait longer than that, they're already reverting to old habits again. So I'd like to get them early so they can start to hear the same recommendations over and over and they start to actually understand. We'll talk now a bit about empiric medical therapy. Recognizing that you do get a 24-hour urine test or two 24-hour urine tests on your patients, when do you use in your practice empiric therapy? Perhaps as an example, a patient who gets form stones every month and you've worked on their 24-hour urine tests, it's improved, but they still form stones. Or maybe the patient who has a normal 24-hour urine test, but is forming a stone every month. I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think it's the patient who has a fairly unremarkable or remarkably unremarkable 24-hour urine, but yet is a very aggressive stone former that I would be most inclined to consider empiric medical therapy. I think, you know, Gary Curhan said it best that all of these urinary parameters are a continuum. If we consider normal urinary calcium less than 200 milligrams a day, it's not like you don't form stones at 199 and you do form stones at 201. It's a continuum and lower is better than higher, even within the normal range. So I think that empiric therapy focuses on that. If it lowers urinary saturation of calcium oxalate because it t brings the calcium down to 150 instead of 190 within the normal range, then that's still a win and that should still be effective in lowering urinary calcium. So I think those patients that you just don't find any real abnormalities, you know, may very well benefit from just being more normal than normal. And those are the patients I'd focus on, particularly those that are just forming stones very aggressively. And it's frustrating to see these normal 24-hour urines. I always feel better if I see a lot of abnormalities and I feel like I have a lot to work with. But even those patients who don't have a lot of abnormalities just may require, you know, values that are lower rather than higher. And in that situation, what do you prefer to use from the medication standpoint? And does it differ between a calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate stone formula? I would say, addressing first the calcium oxalate versus calcium phosphate, I would say for a calcium phosphate stone former, I might be more inclined to use a thiazide for instance, then potassium citrate because of the whole issue of concern over high urine pH, although citrate is an excellent inhibitor of calcium phosphate crystallization. So 
I think both work and I might use both. But in brushite stone formers, I'm really focused on lowering urinary calcium. So in those patients, I'm definitely inclined to use a thiazide, either with or without potassium citrate. Whereas a calcium oxalate stone former, I might start with potassium citrate, depending on what their urine pH and citrate are. I mean, if they already have a pH that's trending toward high and they have a really high citrate, then, you know, they may not derive as much benefit from increasing urinary citrate further and been pushing the pH further. And I might be inclined to focus more on lowering urinary calcium. If they have a urine calcium that's already quite low, 100 milligrams a day, then it's hard to imagine they're going to benefit a whole lot from a thiazide. I'm going to look at the numbers a bit and probably see which trends more toward being on the higher end of normal rather than the lower end and, and focus on that. But I've used both individually and together. I don't know that we know empirically whether one is better than another. And there's certainly evidence for both being beneficial in both calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate stone formers. So it sounds like even the empiric therapy is somewhat nuanced and individualized. I would say it definitely is. And I still would, you know, if I have a 24-hour, I mean, I might say I'm using the medication empirically even if I have a 24-hour urine only because I'm using it in someone who technically has values in what we would consider a normal range. But it's really not empiric. It's really directed because we're still looking at those abnormalities. So maybe we'll start with this patient then, the one with the hypercalcuria. Do you check a PTH on every stone patient or only if they define themselves by having high calcium in the urine? So, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I do check a PTH on everyone, even though our, our guideline recommended checking a PTH only when there's a suspicion of primary hyperparathyroidism, which, as you alluded to, that would be patients, you know, who have, you know, a high or a high normal serum calcium, patients with maybe a markedly elevated urinary calcium, patients with calcium phosphate stones, you know, patients that you just might be more inclined than others. But I think you know, anyone who has a calcium in the 9.9 to 10 range or above would certainly warrant a PTH. But I generally do check it on everybody. I mean, I find so many gradations of, you know, concern for primary hyperparathyroidism that I like to have that information in my pocket and use it sparingly, I guess. In a similar vein, serum uric acid, when do you check that? So although I do check it on everybody if I'm seeing somebody for the first time and I'm checking blood work, if I'm seeing a patient for the first time and I already have blood work from somewhere else on them, I have a complete metabolic panel, but I don't have a uric acid, I don't necessarily send them to the lab for a serum uric acid alone. In those patients, I will typically obtain 24-hour urines first and if I find that their urine pH is low or their urinary uric acid is high, in that circumstance, I might then go back and check a serum uric acid at that point. So serum uric acid may be sort of irrelevant in the patient who has calcium oxalate stones and has a normal urinary uric acid and pH, then it's probably going to be less helpful. And lastly, in terms of advanced testing, what urinary oxalate level would trigger genetic testing for hyperoxaluria? It's variable. I think in the guidelines, we may have said 70 milligrams per day, but I, I think it's variable because I, I think you have to really look at the history. If it's somebody who has some element of bowel disease, I'll allow that urinary oxalate to be higher. I've certainly seen patients with bowel disease have oxalates of 100 milligrams per day, which certainly you know, exceeds what we generally said in the guidelines of about 70. 
So if they have a history that would provide a reason for the oxalate to be high, I may not jump into genetic testing. But if I have a patient who, you know, upon questioning and careful evaluation of their diet does not, you know, delineate that these patients have a high intake of oxalate-rich foods and they have no bowel disease, they have normal bowel movements, then those patients I might have a lower threshold. If they have no reason to have an oxalate of, you know, 70 milligrams a day, then I think those are patients who deserve to be tested. And testing is easy now. So, you know, it used to be not such a, so easy to get genetic testing. And now there's companies that do the testing and and you get back a, a really nice output that clearly delineates it for you. So I think our threshold honestly should be lower because we've, I'm sure we've missed a lot of patients with primary hyperoxyuria just because of the barriers to testing genetically. With regards to thiazides, do you have a preference between chlorothaladone and dapamide, hydrochlorothiazide, or, or perhaps other agents that you typically use as first line? So my go-to, I guess, thiazide is dapamide, which is actually a long-acting non-thiazide diuretic, but it has the same mechanism of action of thiazides. That's my go-to. I like chlorothaladone as well. I just, luck of the draw, I just started using dapamide years ago and have, have used it since. But I like the long-acting thiazides rather than using hydrochlorothiazide, which really should have BID dosing, so less convenient in that sense. And do you typically start with 1.25 for the indapamide or 2.5? I start at 1.25. I do find that patients can get pretty hypokalemic, particularly with the long-acting thiazides. I monitor them really closely, and even in someone with you know, severe hypercalciuria, who I expect will likely require a higher dose, I still will start at 1.25 so I can monitor their potassium and so forth and I work my way up. Maybe you could share with us your algorithm in terms of when to recheck electrolytes on someone who you're initiating therapy. So I typically obtain a basic metabolic panel about three weeks after I start a thiazide. I want to capture those patients who become hypokalemic rapidly so I do that at three weeks. Most of these patients I see back at about three months. So I check it again then because then you should be uncovering those patients who have been sort of slowly depleted over time and become hypokalemic sort of in the long term. So generally three weeks and three months. And then once patients are on a stable dose, I'll check them anywhere from you know six months or yearly. And I try to look and see what blood work they've had done you know, by their primary care doctor or any other physicians. And I'll use that as well. If they tell me they've had blood work, then I ask for that and I can use it as well. But I do monitor them fairly closely because there are some patients who, you know, become just rapidly hypokalemic and severely hypokalemic. And I think we have to make sure we don't miss those patients. I also, there are a lot of patients now who are on, uh, you know, ACE and ARBs and, and those patients you have to be very careful of because of the potassium sparing effect of those medications. So it's not that I won't use it if somebody's on an ACE inhibitor, but I'll monitor them very closely and I'll start at a low dose if I'm adding, you know, potassium citrate, for instance. If somebody comes in on a combination like lisinopro-hydrochlorothiazide, I will usually separate out those medications and I'll just inform their primary care doctor, but I'll separate out the lisinopril as a separate medication and then use the hydrochlorothiazide or I usually change it to endapamide so that I have the ability to actually alter and modify the dose of the thiazide separate from the lisinopril. In addition to monitoring the basic metabolic panel, do you do any monitoring of lipid profile, cholesterol, those types of things? I mean, I check a uric acid routinely, 
And I usually do a lipid profile less frequently. So most of those patients will have that somewhere along the line with their primary care doctor. So I'll check on that. I don't monitor that as closely, but I do routinely monitor a BMP and uric acid. And if a patient says, you know, I eat a lot of potassium-rich foods, I don't want to supplement, do you give them a chance or do you say, you know, I appreciate you're eating a lot of potassium, but you need more? I mean, some of those patients that seem to be pretty, you know, in tune to the dietary modifications, I'll let them try it and I'll see. I'm always concerned about it because I I, I do think, you know, I, I see patients all the time who are on thiazides that they were started on by their primary care doctors. And they're all hypokalemic. And I'm just always surprised that the internists don't put them on a potassium supplement because I find that so many of them are hypokalemic when I see them in the office. I don't mind trying that. And I really try to work with them a bit on what, you know, what are some of the potassium rich foods. But I would, again, I would check them quickly at three weeks. I would check them again, you know, maybe even before three months. If someone doesn't respond to the thiazide therapy, the calcium remains high. What's the next step? Do you try a different medication or are there other things that you start thinking about and doing? Yeah, I mean, I'll walk up in dosage. I mean, if I'm working with endapamide, then I'll start at 1.25. I'll go up to 2.5. And in some patients, I'll go up to five milligrams a day if their potassium is going to tolerate it. Sometimes I have to put them on a potassium sparing medication as well to keep their potassium in the normal range. So I'll push it as far as I can reasonably push it. If I'm getting no response, then I have an occasion change someone, particularly if they're on hydrochlorothiazide and they're on it sort of solidly, then I'll leave them on that. But I may stop that and then change them to endapamide or chlorthalidone. I've even switched from endapamide to chlorothalidone or vice versa. I don't know that I have any sort of systematic evidence that would suggest that one is better than another or that patients respond differently to the different long-acting thiazides, for instance. So I don't know that I have enough experience to say that, but I'll play around with the medications just to see if anything else will work, just because we don't have much else to offer them when when their calciums are high and they're not responding to a thiazide. Just in those patients, you do want to think about primary hyperparathyroidism or something else that may be that may be at play here that's keeping their calcium so high. Does it ever come to a point where you do make a recommendation to cut back on their dietary calcium intake? I mean, never severely, but I will question them about that and how much calcium they're really getting in their diet. I do have concerns because I do think a message gets out there, I think, to patients or they read more into it then is there that more calcium is better. And that's really not the message. The message is the recommended daily allowance of calcium is is presumably what is needed to maintain bone health. And we really don't want the calcium intake to be greater than that. I try to get at that with patients and make sure they're not getting more than they need or make sure they're not on a calcium supplement, for instance. I wouldn't necessarily cut them back to severely restrict their dietary intake so they're getting you know, less than, say, 1,000 milligrams a day, but I just might be sure that they're not overdoing it. Can you tell us a little bit about the thiazide holiday? When do you realize that you need to consider one? How long do you have the holiday? And when you come back from the holiday, do you resume the same medication or something different? Oh, that's a great question. And I, I don't know that anybody actually knows the answer to that. I mean, the the thought behind uh, you know a drug holiday or a thiazide holiday was that particularly for patients who had absorptive hypercalciuria. And this day and age, we're not really distinguishing among patients 
with the so-called different types of hypercalciuria, absorptive versus renal leak hypercalciuria. We don't make those distinctions anymore in our evaluations or in our treatment. But the thought was always that patients with renal hypercalciuria or renal leak hypercalciuria, the root of the problem was really at the level of the kidney and that thiazides act at the level of the kidney so that the benefit of those medications and the effectiveness of those medications tended to be maintained. Whereas with absorptive hypercalciuria, the problem is at the level of the intestine, but we really don't have any medications that act at the level of the intestine to reduce calcium absorption. So we're treating them indirectly by reabsorbing calcium from the kidney but not addressing the problem of, for instance, overabsorbing from the intestine. So the, the thought was that thiazides for absorptive hypercalciuria had a more limited effectiveness, that there was a, a durability issue, and that after about 18 to 24 months, the hypocalciuric action tended to diminish. So those patients, if you would stop the medication, and typically when I've done it, I'll stop it for six months, and then I'll start them back on, usually at a lower dose, honestly, and I don't necessarily change the medication I have, but mostly I'll just go back at a starting dose again and see if it renews its effectiveness. I don't know what really the basis behind that is or if it somehow resets the fractional absorption of calcium from the intestine. But in some patients, I did seem to see that that effectiveness would improve. And in others, I didn't see much change at all. So I haven't done that, honestly, in a while, but it's usually an act of desperation on my part for the most part. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. Are there any other nuances to the hypercalciuric patient, or should we shift over to the patient with low citrate? We can shift to low citrate. Okay. We've touched a little bit on the use of citrate, potassium citrate, in the patient who's receiving a thiazide. Potassium citrate, I suspect, is your go-to when it comes to either alkalinization or citrate supplementation? It is. And what is your second-line therapy for the patient that either cannot afford potassium citrate or perhaps doesn't like the big pill? So there are different dosages of potassium citrate. So there's 15 milliequivalent tablets, 10 milliequivalent tablets, and fives. So the 10 milliequivalent pills are a tiny bit smaller than the 15s, and the fives are, are substantially smaller. They're round rather than sort of capsule-shaped and are oblong. And those are definitely easier, I think, to swallow from a size standpoint than the others. So I have some patients taking the five milliequivalent tablets, but obviously it's a lot of pills, which would be the downside of that. If it's just a matter of pill size, then I'll switch it to that because the benefit of potassium citrate that really nothing else can meet is it's a slow-release tablet. So it's really the one medication you can give twice a day and you're maintaining the effectiveness of it over a 24-hour period any of these other substitutes that we use are short acting and technically should be given multiple times a day, but most patients just won't comply with that. So I think, you know, if we're trying to really maintain a steady level of urinary citrate throughout the day, then you really want, you know, it is ideal to use a sustained release tablet. I stick with that if I can. Now, if patients can't afford it, can't swallow it, can't tolerate it, or in patients with bowel disease and any form of malabsorption, then I want to use a liquid formulation. And if I go to a liquid formulation, I will usually use the Citra K medication, which is a, a combination of potassium citrate and citric acid. The variability of that is all over the place. I mean, sometimes it's available, sometimes it's not available, but it used to be available in packets, which was at least semi-convenient. 
The liquid is obviously not convenient. It's not convenient for travel. It's not convenient for taking it to work. And it needs to be dosed more frequently. Technically, should be given probably four times a day, but just it's rare that you're going to find a patient who will comply with that or who or really practically can comply with it. So in the end, I end up compromising and, and giving it to them twice a day, which is probably not ideal. But it is a good alternative for patients who need a liquid formulation. Alternative to that would be potassium bicarbonate, which is an effervescent tablet. So it's an Alka-Seltzer type tablet. Same problem. It is potassium-based, which is good, but it also is short-acting, has a short half-life. So technically should be dosed multiple times throughout the day, but at least it's portable. You know, some patients don't like the taste of these. They're flavored. Both the Citric K and the potassium bicarbonate are flavored, and some people don't like it. Some do. But those are both reasonable alternatives, and at least the potassium bicarbonate is something you could travel with because it is a a tablet. And then you get into the sodium-based alkali, and that would be sodium bicarbonate, which has the advantage of being incredibly cheap. You can get it on Amazon. It's like $16 for 1,000 tablets. So patients can take that. It's convenient, but it also technically should be dosed multiple times a day. And it takes really two tablets of sodium bicarbonate at 650 milligrams a tablet to equal one 15 milliequivalent potassium citrate. So you can get into a significant number of tablets with sodium bicarbonate as well. And then there's bicitra, which is sort of the sodium-based equivalent to citric K, which is sodium citrate citric acid combination. And again, for patients who need a liquid formulation or who can't have potassium because of renal function or GI upset, that's another alternative. So there are a lot of alternatives out there to potassium citrate, but really, at least in my mind, a lot of them are inferior because they're not sustained-release tablets. And Dr. Pearl, do you have any thoughts or comments on the Moonstone Nutrition powder as an alternative? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about Moonstone is, number one, it's available, you know, you don't need a prescription for it, and it comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in a gummy form, it comes in powder, liquid. So it, there are a variety of, of formulations that you can use that might suit one person over another. And it does have a reasonable amount of alkali in it, so it can be effective in that sense. So I think, you know, we don't have a lot of stone data or actual stone formation data on it, but just from the standpoint of its alkali content, it's on target. And it also has the benefit of potentially having patients drink more because they, if they consume it as a liquid from a powder, it's portable. So there are advantages to it. We haven't seen actual stone formation date, but there's data, but there's no reason not to expect that it should be effective if it's contains potassium citrate. Maybe we'll now talk about the patient with high pH, low citrate, and how do you balance that supplementation? What pH are you willing to push it to? Do you use the calcium phosphate supersaturation to base your dosing? What are the nuances to that patient? So in my mind, I mean, citrate is a potent inhibitor of calcium phosphate crystallization. And we know from patients with renal tubular acidosis that the treatment is alkali and that you're treating the metabolic acidosis. So in those patients, they're already starting out with high pHs. Their pH may be, you know, 7, 7.1, 7.2. They may already have high urine pH. And the goal in those patients is really to correct the acidosis. And as a result, you should see an increase in urinary citrate. I'm not so afraid about pH if I'm seeing effectiveness in terms of urinary citrate. 
if I'm giving potassium citrate to someone with a high urine pH, say not not a renal tubular acidosis patient, if I'm seeing pH go up and the citrate isn't changing, then there's probably no point in continuing to increase that dose. So I think I'm really just looking for the effectiveness that if it's working at increasing the urinary citrate, I'm happy with that. And, and I'll find a happy medium somewhere. I may not be able to achieve a urinary citrate over 500, but I might be able to go from a urinary citrate in the 100 or 200 range to a 3 or 400 range with the pH increasing from, say, you know, 6.5 to 6.9. I'll accept that. So I'll look for somewhere where it looks like I'm getting at least a decent citraturic response without increasing the, the pH to you know, a lot higher than seven. I sort of settle for both somewhere in the middle. And, uh, you know, and then I I look to see what kind of clinical effectiveness it's achieving. If they're not forming stones and their citrates lower than I might consider optimal, I'll settle for that because the proof is really, are are they forming stones? But I don't get that hung up on the pH if I'm seeing a response to the citrate. Shifting now to urease inhibitors, Do you have a preference between the agents available, and when do you decide to initiate therapy? To be honest, I mean, I have very few patients that I'm actually using urease inhibitors on. I have a few. I mean, the side effect profile is really high in these agents. Acetohydroxamic acid is sort of the the available drug that I would say most use, and so many patients don't tolerate it. It probably has about a 50% side effect profiles. So there's going to be a lot of patients who don't tolerate it and can't use it. The patients that I think in my practice, I would say that that are just the recurrent struvite stone formers are, I would say it's the the patients with the um, spinal cord injury patients. I'd say the multiple sclerosis patients, they're, you know, highly recurrent stone formers. And those patients tend to already, you know, the, the multiple sclerosis patients, the MS patients often ha- already have tremors and other things, and the acetohydroxamic acid can really exacerbate that. So, you know, it's not a real well-tolerated medication, and I try it, I'd say, only in the most desperate cases where I'm finding that, you know, I do a PCNL for a full stag, and within three months, they're back with a stone filling their collecting system again. So I try it. I see how they do with it. I wouldn't say that I have enough patients in my practice on it to really determine if it's beneficial or not. In patients that have indwelling catheters, I'm really reluctant to put them on suppressive antibiotics. And for a lot of those patients, I think I'm reluctant to use suppressive antibiotics because they already have such a high likelihood of having recurrent UTIs, and that just seems to make that issue all the harder to treat. So they're they're really difficult patients, and so I'd say we're we're using urease inhibitors in the you know in the most desperate of cases. For the patient with high urinary pH, do you use any medical therapy to try to drop the pH? I really don't. The concern about giving anything that's going to cause more of an acidosis is that they get a metabolic acidosis, and now you're going to have a, a negative effect on bones and and bone demineralization. So. I haven't actively tried to do that. I mean, there was a time we we thought about that for some of the calcium phosphate stone formers, if we could lower their pH, would it particularly brushite stone formers? But I don't think we've really found anything that's either promising or that I would necessarily consider safe. Shifting now to exanthine oxidase inhibitors, 
when do you use them in uric acid stone formers and when do you use them in calcium-based stone formers? Oh, I would say that I use it somewhat sparingly. I use it in patients, first of all, who might have a markedly elevated urinary uric acid without a lot of other abnormalities. I certainly try diet first, and I try to strongly suggest to patients that they try to to limit their intake of animal protein and to try to lower it with diet. But there are some patients who aren't consuming a lot of animal protein and have very high uric acids. Now, patients who have gout, I have no problem putting them on a xanthine oxidase inhibitor because it can be beneficial from both the standpoint of gout and recurrent stone formation. So I'd say in calcium stone formers, I tend to probably push medication a little harder for hypercalciuria and hypocitraturia and low urine pH and to start with more dietary measures for urinary uric acid. I think it's just maybe a little more controversial how much that is contributing to their recurrent stone formation. But I do use it in patients that are still forming stones when I'm correcting other abnormalities. In uric acid stone formers, I'm much more focused on urine pH. It's really a disease of urinary acidification, and and the key to treatment of these patients is to increase urine pH and to try to achieve a urine pH of the, in the 6 to 6.5 range. If those patients are still forming uric acid stones despite normalization of their urinary pH, then I would consider adding a xanthine oxidase inhibitor to try to lower urinary uric acid. But we know from just chemistry that even high amounts of uric acid are going to be soluble if the pH is high, and even small amounts of uric acid will crystallize and form stones if the pH is low. So the goal has to be really to work with pH and to try to normalize the urine pH before resorting to lowering urinary uric acid. I mean, perhaps in patients, you know, who have overwhelming amounts of uric acid in their urine from chemotherapy or or other abnormalities where just the sheer concentration of uric acid may really be a significant issue. Well, Dr. Perot, recognizing that our time is limited, maybe you could share kind of the highlights for two special patients. The first would be that who is identified to have primary hyperoxaluria. So for those patients, and you know, these are rare patients. I mean, I can say in in my career, I've probably had maybe three patients with primary hyperoxaluria, and I see nothing but patients with stones. So I mean, these are rare patients. Although again, as I mentioned earlier, we're probably under-diagnosing these patients, and maybe we'll do a better job now with genetic testing available. But with those patients, the genetic testing, I think, really is key because you want to identify these patients and you want to be able to identify their subtype because the treatment is different and the outcome, you know, may be different as well. So in, you know, we can think about using medications, we can think about using pyridoxine, you know, in patients with hyperoxyuria type 1, whereas that may not be effective in patients with other types of, you know, type 2 or type 3 hyperoxyuria. So I think genetic testing has to be really at the forefront of of the diagnosis of these patients and determining their form of treatment. So anyone who sees somebody that they're suspecting might have primary hyperoxyuria should pursue genetic testing so that they can recommend appropriate treatment. I mean, there are other, you know, measures that we can use in terms of high fluid intake and potassium citrate and so forth. But in the areas that we really can treat patients effectively, like in primary hyperoxyuria type 1, 
where we have medications, it, it's important to be able to identify the subtype. And Dr. Pearl, lastly, your main tips and tricks for the patient with cysteine stones. So patients with cysteine stones, I mean, I, I really like taking care of patients with, with cystinuria because it all kind of makes sense. And it's just, a, it's a systematic way of treating these patients based on information that we gain from the urine. So I think you have to take into account how aggressive their stone formation is or has been, what their kidney function is, and you start just going through it. We want to know their urine volume. We want to know their urine pH. We want to know their sodium. We want to know what sort of animal protein intake they have, and we want to know their cysteine excretion levels. And we start systematically. The first line of therapy would be just increasing fluid intake. If we can increase the fluid intake to the point where the concentration of cysteine in the urine is below the cysteine solubility, then that may be all you need. And that would be in a you know fairly mild cystinuric. For patients in whom fluid enough isn't going to be able to achieve a solubility that is a concentration that's below the solubility of cysteine, then we start thinking about modifying urine pH because we can increase cysteine solubility by increasing urine pH. So then the next line of agents would be the alkali agents that will increase urine pH. And I'm aiming for a pH of between 7 and 7.5, usually with potassium citrate. We do want to try to avoid sodium in these patients because increased urinary sodium will increase cysteine excretion. So Ideally, I'd rather stay away from sodium bicarbonate if at all possible. And then for those patients in whom fluids and, and alkali aren't enough, then we have to move on to the cysteine-binding thiol agents like alpha-mercaptopropanilglycine and depenicillamine. And those are the patients that we have to titrate to affect and try to increase the cysteine solubility by forming complexes between the cysteine-binding thiol drug and the monomer of cysteine, the cysteine, forming a complex that's more soluble than the cysteine dimer. And those medications, we have different ways that we can try to titrate that. I think if we look at 24-hour urine collections that are done by Lithalink, they have a proprietary assay in which they measure urinary capacity, and capacity is really the capacity of the urine to hold more cysteine in solution is how I think of it. So you want a positive capacity. You want the urine to be able to hold more cysteine in solution because that means that the urine is undersaturated. So we can alter, we can titrate our use of alpha-mercaptopropanilglycine to reach um, a cysteine capacity that we consider is low risk for, for cysteine stone formation. And, you know, we don't know exactly what that number is. I tend to try to reach a level that's somewhere between about 80 and 100. And we did a study that looked at that. Justin Friedlander looked at that when he was a fellow with us. And that seemed to be a level at which we did not see patients making cysteine stones. So that's sort of what I am striving for. And you consider other dietary factors like like limiting sodium so as to decrease urinary cysteine excretion, limiting animal protein. Those are really the only two dietary measures other than fluid that seem to have play much of a role. And we really don't know of any natural inhibitors for cysteine stones, so we don't have any agents that can inhibit cysteine formation per se. 
Well, Dr. Pearl, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge. Thank you from both our listeners as well as the patients who will benefit from this dissemination. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. I hope you found this informative and entertaining. Thank you so much, Manoj. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.